This morning, we're uh, continuing our series on John's Gospel. Maybe just down a touch so that we're not ringing. That'd be great. Cheers. Uh, it's worth noting, though, at this point uh, of the Gospel, it's a, it marks a turning point, a prominent change in pace uh, for John. Because uh, in terms of the structure of the Gospel, <clears throat> this point in the narrative, for three years up to this point, Jesus has been ministering, he's been demonstrating signs of the kingdom. He's been responding to both the opposition and the acceptance that's come as a result of that. And during those years, many who believe he's the Messiah have been impatient for him to do the job of Messiah, which is to restore Israel as a sovereign nation. Uh, his response along the lines to that has been along the lines of his hour has not yet come. It's not yet his time. But this passage uh, begins by saying that the time has indeed now come, and we're going to justifiably call this Act 2 of John's Gospel, which Claire is going to read for us, and which is going to appear on the screen as well. This is um, John 13, 1 through 20. You can also read it in your Bible if you would like. <laughs> <laughs> it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No. No said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage in scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Thanks. Could you get the basins of water now, please? And uh, pop your shoes off. Sorry. Yes. 952 years ago, on a beach on the south coast of England called Pevensey Bay, William of Normandy arrived upon the land that he would then go on to conquer and become its king. There's a couple of battles in between that, but you get the point. <laughs> 23 years ago on that same beach, there was a 16-year-old guy called Jesse, and he was reading this very passage of scripture that we've just heard, and Jesus invaded his heart. It was, it was literally the first bit of the Bible he had ever read. And it would still take three days from that point for Jesus to go through a bit of a battle and to conquer him and become his king. But the reading of this passage was without doubt the, the point of invasion. And this is how that went. I had lived my life up to that point believing certain things about Christianity. Mostly I saw it as a, as a humanly contrived system uh, created as a means of control. That system worked a bit like this. If I want to control you, but you don't fear me enough to obey me, I'll just get God to back me up. So what I'm telling you to do is actually what God is telling you to do. And if you disobey God, well, you'll suffer terrible consequences for all eternity. So you better do what I want you to do. Now, it's true to say that such a form of religious abuse is not a million miles from how Christianity has been and perhaps even still is used in some quarters. So my opinion wasn't entirely without basis. I even believed that there was probably a historical man called Jesus. He may well have been crucified. Uh, he was obviously a man who created an alternative power structure who, uh, to rival the Romans, so they probably killed him for it. But as for his character as a person, as far as I knew, he was the original manipulator. Somebody who created a system of manipulation based on the holding of eternal souls to ransom. So there I was on Pevensey Bay, and I was sat with a group of teenagers who had invited me uh, there. I thought I was going to save them from their ignorance, but um, <laughs> each of us holding a copy of this ancient book that described the founder of this religion. And in so doing... Uh, by holding this book and by looking at what it said, we were sidestepping all the many corruptions and, uh, and all the unsubstantiated views I'd come to believe about Jesus. And I just wasn't prepared for what we then read. So before I've even said anything about the substance of what this text actually says, I really wanted to come to you this morning and give you a personal testimony of these two things. First, I want to testify that this book is powerful stuff. I literally met Jesus through its pages. Don't ever take it for granted. It is a gift, a precious gift, through which we get to see and find out who God is and who we are. It changed my life. Secondly, I want to testify to the fact that when Christians spend time with this book 
and really wrestle with its words. That act in itself is a powerful witness because it demonstrated to me that Christians weren't people who had stopped asking questions or, or, or people who had completely outsourced their thinking to leaders. They were quite the opposite. They were people whose lives were characterized by a hunger to know more, by humility that said, I don't know all the answers. That gave me words to frame my first ever prayer to God, which went something like this. God, I still have more questions about you than I have answers. And I don't expect that to ever change. I'll probably spend the rest of my life asking infuriating and probably unanswerable questions. But I know now that I can either do that with you or without you. And if you're really the God that I see in the man Jesus, I don't want to spend another moment of my life without you. And at that point, I asked God to forgive me for all the ways I'd wronged him and wronged others, and I vowed to be, from that time forwards, forever his. So if you hear me say nothing else this morning, hear this, that that option is right in front of you on the table this morning. It is never too late to turn around to meet the God who is rather than the God you've constructed. There's nothing you've done that God cannot forgive and isn't longing to forgive. If only you would give yourself to him. And if at some point in your life you've already done that, let me remind you that he never tires of hearing you say that you are his. Because he knows that when you receive his forgiveness and you pledge yourself to him, you're right back where you were always meant to be. So I may have started with the end, but that's the, that's the offer I want to put on the table this morning, that Jesus is just longing to see you back where you belong. So now, at last, to the text. Jesus knew, John says, that his hour had now come. The preliminaries are over, it's time to actually do the business of being Messiah. So what was that business? Well, essentially it was to rescue uh, God's people from out from under the yoke of Roman slavery, to be established as the new king over a sovereign nation of Israel. And the time had now come for Jesus to get this done. And John says at this point, Jesus knew that God had put all things into his hands. He was ready to take on the enemy. So what did he do? His first act in his move uh, as a warrior king rescuing the people, well, he gathers his closest friends for a meal. He gets a basin of water and a towel, gets down on his hands and knees, and he literally washes the crap off their feet. I just want to take a moment here just to see how this is another example of the, of the ways that Jesus does ministry. He doesn't just do stuff without explaining what he's doing. And he doesn't just say stuff without demonstrating something alongside of it. He's always doing both of those things in tandem. It's always show and tell, tell and show. And he doesn't do it just so that we can see him do it. He does it so that we can learn how to do it for ourselves. 
There's a phrase he uses in in verse 17 that I think encapsulates this. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Knowing them is important, but you'll be blessed if you do them. You can't do them without knowing them, but to get the blessing, you've got to do them. But to do it, you need to know it, and so you need to know and you need to do That was a great sentence. So he's showing us and he's telling us what he's like. He's showing us and he's telling us what we're supposed to be like if we call ourselves his. And the primary characteristic he's really revealing here in this act is, of course, service. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that uh, Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. That is the radical nature of what Jesus is doing in this passage. That the mission of the messianic warrior king involves such lowly service. So I've got three things I just want to draw out about the kind of service that Jesus demonstrates. What that service says about God where it tells us about the kind of character that the Holy Spirit wants to form in each of us. The first thing is this, that Jesus does simply what needs to be done. The washing of feet was a very basic custom of the region that was observed at mealtimes. These guys didn't have nicely paved roads that they walked on with their memory foam insoles. They had dirt roads and sandals. So their feet would be pretty disgusting after a long day of walking. And this cleaning of feet would normally be the responsibility of whoever was hosting the meal. They'd often have servants to do this task. And it would just be an act of basic hospitality. In this event that's described, the meal was so private, though, that it seems that only 13 of them were present. And Jesus essentially was the host of this meal. So he saw it as his duty. He did it quietly, without fuss, without a word. He made no great noise about the, about the act. It was a job that needed to be done, and he did it. By doing it, he said, you're not my servants. You're not my slaves. I'm your servant. I'm your host. And a servant doesn't pick and choose his tasks. He just does what needs to be done. When it needs to be done, how it needs to be done. But Jesus is obviously doing more than just cleaning feet here. He's symbolically acting out how it is he who, through the service of his whole ministry, will cleanse and purify people of all the dirt that has gathered up in people's lives, accumulated, preventing us from sharing peaceful communion with our Father in heaven. Without the service of Jesus, we are lost. And we can never find our way back to God. But God just simply won't have that. So Jesus comes, and what does he do? He does what needs to be done. He came not to be served, but to serve. This is the second characteristic of his uh, service. By serving in this way, he redefines leadership. He doesn't serve despite being their leader. 
He serves because he is their leader. He demonstrates true leadership in this way. The passage says that Jesus did this knowing, and almost, it seems, in response to the fact that God had given all things into his hands. What did Jesus do with that power? He served his friends. That's the thing that took out the first line of my defenses back on Pevensey Bay. Here was a man who had power, and it was clear to me that the power was safe in the hands of Jesus. I couldn't say that about all leaders. I wish I could. And it's that which made me both love and trust Jesus. He had all power and authority, and what he did with that power and authority was serve his friends. And when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. We've been saying this all throughout our, our series on John's Gospel. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. It's absolutely mind-blowing when you think about it that what Jesus reveals is a God whose character is one of self-sacrifice and service. The God whom we should worship simply because he is God condescends to be with those whom he loves. And this isn't some odd quirk of his personality that only appears in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus, because all that God does is always and completely part of who God is. So if God is holy because he's completely outside of creation, completely separate from it, then he's also holy because he comes into creation to serve those whom he loves, to rescue us from our slavery, bringing us back to himself and transforming a broken world through his act of self-sacrifice. That is holiness. Those of us who lead, those of us who look to other leaders, should therefore look for this as the most countercultural but most true reflection of real leadership, the quality of sacrificial service. The quality of not considering oneself so highly that one refuses to get down on hands and knees to deal with the dirt. And like the hymn of Paul in Philippians says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead took the form of a servant. That is leadership. The third thing is that his service is indiscriminate. There is, of course, over this whole episode, the shadow of Judas's betrayal. Jesus knows that Judas's heart is against God's purposes. And what does Jesus do with that knowledge? He takes his basin of water, he takes his towel, he gets down on his hands and knees, and he washes the feet of his betrayer. The service that Jesus undertakes, he undertakes for all who have ever lived 
and will ever live. His service is a love which, in the words of Paul in Corinthians, is not proud, is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always hopes and it always perseveres. This is not, I love you if, dot, dot, dot. This is, I love you, full stop. So having, having already taken down the first line of my defenses back in Pevensey Bay with this extraordinary act of leadership, it was this love that finally destroyed the walls. To pour love on somebody who reciprocates with love, that I can understand. But to perform such an act of loving service for someone Jesus knew to be his enemy and his betrayer, There's nothing to be gained by loving such a person. That was costly love, and it totally won me. In Luke and Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that if you love those who love you back, you've, you've not really loved, because you've got your reward. And this is Jesus demonstrating that teaching with his actions. By not discriminating against Judas, even though he knows what he's going to do, he washes his feet just like he washes the feet of everybody else. So does this mean that Judas was cleansed and purified from his sins because Jesus washed his feet? Well, no. We have to remember not just what Jesus does, but also what he teaches. Because despite all of them now having clean feet, Jesus says this, not all of you are clean and he means Judas. And in the sense in which this foot cleansing is symbolic of the greater act of cleaning which Jesus achieves through his full ministry, Judas has no part. This isn't because Jesus prevents him, but because Judas himself has chosen a path of his own design rather than God's design. So let me just add this as a warning alongside the good news of the gospel, that those whom Jesus has not washed have no share in him. But it's incredibly important that we understand this warning as coming alongside the promise that there are none, not even Judas, who are not given the option of accepting Jesus' service. The share that I have in Jesus is one that I have the choice of rejecting. But that would be my rejection of his service, not his refusal to serve me. He serves all. But like Peter, like he teaches Peter, I must allow Jesus to serve me in that way. Otherwise, I have no part in him. So these are the three sort of characteristics of service that I wanted to draw out of this passage. First of all, that service is doing what needs to be done, the way it needs to be done, when it needs to be done. Secondly, that service, sacrificial service, is a defining characteristic of true leadership. And thirdly, 
that Christ-like service is indiscriminate. It doesn't count a record of wrongs. It gives and it gives and it gives. So this is Jesus, the servant king. The king who did what needed to be done. The king who led by becoming least among men. The king who loved his betrayer just as much as he loved anyone else. There's a wonderful uh, vineyard song that came out recently called Wear the Crown. And it has this line. It says, a king like you the world has never seen. A king who died to save his enemies. That's our king. The song also says this, you owe us nothing, but you never cease to give. That's our king, Jesus. It says, you have all power, but took a servant's knee. That's our king, Jesus. Who, because he was in the very nature our God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's stand and pray.